Hello, and welcome to Gaspar's History Podcast. This is Gaspar, and I am continuing the Meat Hound series with Episode 5, An Old Friend. In our last episode, which was titled, I Thought You Were Dead, the star of the series, 42-29524, was one day away from heading east to become part of the 306 bomb group. Let me review the last episode and bring you up to speed on where we are in our story. The I Thought You Were Dead story happened on December 30, 1942, when the 306 bomb group turned back at the French coast and aborted a mission to bomb the Lorient submarine pens because they did not have enough aircraft to fly the mission. But we found out that there was actually other bomb groups that had a similar plane count and they had continued the mission. Captain Brady of the 423rd Squadron was late to take off that day due to needing a plane and a replacement bombardier. The replacement bombardier was none other than Steele's bombardier, Gardner Reynolds, a replacement for the day, and one of the 17 that had come in with Steele and Steele's crew on December 11th. Our story verbally illustrated the terrible fate of Captain Brady and his crew, along with Lieutenant Floyd Love's crew of the 366 Bomb Squadron, who after seeing one of those yellow-nosed bastards trying to shoot down Brady and his men in their parachutes, rushed to the rescue, only to endure the same fate. We learned how Gardner Reynolds was a lone survivor out of both aircraft, and how he was reported as killed in action in the 306 Bomb Group unit history, only to find out some 45 years later, while talking with Steele on the phone, that he was listed as killed. We also reflected on how none of the crews were recovered and how their families of the fallen crewmen endured for years with no resolution to their grief. Today, we begin a new journey. It is New Year's Eve, 1942, the day after Brady and Love were lost. 42-29524 finally leaves Seattle and makes her way to Denver, Colorado, where she would stay until January 7th, 1943. The 306 Bomb Group and Steel are going to meet an old friend on January 3rd, but more on that in a minute. On January 7th, she was flown to Salina, Kansas, where she most likely landed at Smoky Hill Army Airfield. Smoky Hill Army Airfield was a base that was built in 1942 so that it could handle the B-17 and B-24 bombers. Today, Present time today, 2023, there is a museum in Salina called the Smoky Hill Museum. So if you're passing by, you might want to stop in and tell them Gaspar sent you. Mention my name and you get a free inquisitive look or most likely a polite smile and a nod. Boy, will they be surprised the day I show up and ask about all the listeners I sent there. She stayed at Smoky Hill for a little over a month. Maybe the weather was bad, or the food was good, or the Air Corps was short of pilots. No matter the reason, that is where she was. She then left on February 12, 1943, for Morrison Air Airfield, which is just west of West Palm Beach, Florida, and another one of my old stomping grounds. This is where the Air Transport Command was housed. She was quickly refitted and flown on Valentine's Day to the Homestead Air Base in Miami, just a short jaunt down A1A. Here's a short intermission for my special listeners out there, since we love to give credit to the mechanics and the ground crews 
What famous ground crew member from the 8th Fighter Bomber Squadron was stationed at Homestead Air Force Base? That's right, Sergeant Edmund Salas. It was in Homestead Air Force Base where the crew of the 369th Fightin' Bitin' picked her up and where Kermit B. Jerry Cavito, the navigator, and the crew would fly her to Devil's Island. Yes, Devil's Island. How cool is that? And I wonder if Papillon was there. This account was sent directly to me from Jerry's son. So if you're listening, I would love to hear from you as I tried to ping you on Messenger, but to no avail. Anyway, she then made the transatlantic journey and landed at Dakar, which I'm sure smelled a lot better than Devil's Island. Dakar was a pretty popular landing spot for the transatlantic flights, unlike Devil's Island, which I did not see a lot of references to. From there, she made another very popular stop at Marrakesh, Morocco. And then finally, on March 2, 1943, 42-29524 arrives at her new home in Thurley, England. Jerry Cavito would go on to design and paint the Fightin' Bitin' logo. What a wonderful and exotic journey for a wonderful aircraft. And as I mentioned in an earlier episode, it was a very similar route to that that Jimmy Stewart, the famous actor, would take when he brought his aircraft over to England. There is a reference online where Stewart led his squadron from Florida to Brazil to Dakar to Marrakesh to England. A very similar path indeed. I also have to imagine that this was a much more pleasant journey than the Canada, Greenland, and Iceland route, especially in the winter where there are stories out there that the airfields would be piled with 14 feet of snow on each side of the runway. I'm also happy that Jerry Cavito documented the journey, and now we have it for posterity. This documentation is of particular notice because when Jerry and his crew reached England, they were given a different aircraft, and 42-29524 was sent over to the 423rd Bomb Squadron. Now that we know which navigator successfully brought 42-29524 to England, we have some other missions and stories to tell that involve Steele and the members of the 306 bomb group before 42-29524 officially arrives at Thurley. But I wanted to get the journey documented so we know how and when the star arrives. Now back to Sunday, January 3rd, 1943. You must wonder how much the 423rd Squadron was thinking about the loss of Captain Brady and his crew. You know there was a lot of if-onlys going around. If only one more plane. If only his plane was ready earlier. If only he saw us turn back. If only. I wonder what the priests and the chaplains prayed about on that day. For Steele and his crew, it was even more personal. Their bombardier... Barrick's mate and friend, Gardner Reynolds, was gone. They had been through training and the transatlantic journey and had a good team, and now that team would never get to fly in combat together. But that was an easier pill to swallow compared to losing a friend. It was a solemn reminder, though, of how serious and fatal their jobs were. How do you write a letter home to Gardner's family? 
we don't know what happened. We don't know where he is. We don't know anything. Sounds like a pretty dumb letter to me. The crews were briefed at 0630, and there was a heightened sigh from the group. We were going after an old friend, the submarine pens at St. Nazaire. This is almost like deja vu all over again, if you're catching what I'm throwing at you. The St. Nazaire submarine pens were just as tough as the Lorient submarine pens. They were constructed with 480,000 cubic meters of reinforced concrete and a rooftop of anti-aircraft batteries. It was no wonder the crews responded with disdain. St. Nazaire was the group's nemesis, their Moriarty. This would be the 365th attack on St. Nazaire and the 4th for the 423rd Squadron. Steele could feel the tension in the room. The mood immediately changed and the pilots were looking at each other. The 306 did not have a good history with St. Nazaire, and to be honest, the 423rd had also suffered greatly. In the disastrous first mission to St. Nazaire, Bomber Command had decided to try a low-level attack to improve bombing accuracy, and despite protests from the 306 leadership, the order was confirmed. The 423rd lost two planes and crews on that day, and with both being brought down by flak and crashing in the St. Nazaire Harbor. So right off the bat, St. Nazaire left a bad taste in their mouths. It was this mission that every plane was riddled with flak. The 423rd was so shot up that they landed at Port Trieth in Cornwall, a long way from home. Hold that thought. Deja vu. Our now-departed friend, Captain Brady, was the lone 423rd representative to St. Nazaire on November 14th, and thankfully, on that day, there were no casualties. The 306 bomb group again went to St. Nazaire on November 17th, and even though no planes were lost, top turret gunner and engineer Kenneth Allenbach was killed, with two others seriously wounded, sent to the hospital, and an additional slightly wounded. So again, St. Nazaire left an imprint on the 423rd Bomb Squadron. It is also important to note that in mid-November, the Germans moved a squadron of Focke Wolf 190s into Brest to help protect the region and the submarine pens. And based on our last couple of episodes, we are all too familiar with those yellow-nosed bastards. Hopefully you are getting a good feeling on why St. Nazaire is referred to as such an old friend. The St. Nazaire submarine pens were not a small target. Well, at 20,000 feet, I guess most things are small, but the pens were 300 meters long and 130 meters wide, so they were not exactly impossible to hit. The reality of it was, was that their construction was superb, and even with 1,000-pound general-purpose bombs, they were relatively secure, but man, I would hate to be in an anti-aircraft crew sitting on the top of that roof when the bomb started to fall. Speaking of those gun crews, the flak and gun crews of St. Nazaire were renowned, and this was adding to the consternation in the room. Let's be honest, there was also something else. Influenza had hit the unit hard, and there was a question if there was going to be enough crews to fly the mission 
and the last thing they needed was to be short of crews. Lieutenant Ralph W. Jones had been with the 423rd Squadron since June of 1942. He'd finished his flight training in Lubbock, Texas. Lieutenant Jones had a look in his eyes and that smirk on his mouth that lets you know he is thinking way more than he is saying. Lieutenant Jones had missed the first trip to St. Nazaire, but he'd heard the stories and he saw the results. Steele was quiet, but he could tell Jones was nervous while also trying to play it down. Captain Mac McKay, God bless him, who was small in stature but tall in character and respect, he was in the room, and when he spoke, the room got quiet, and he was all too familiar with St. Nazaire. In fact, it was his crew's comments to the S-2 during the after-mission briefing of the first mission, the low-level mission, that summed up the whole opinion for the squadron, and they made their statement in French, and it was the most elegant of words. Bullshit. I suppose one cannot say that the soldiers never thought it was going to be them that was going to get killed, because there's numerous stories where soldiers predicted their death, especially during the American Civil War. For the most part, though, the soldiers did believe it was going to be the other guy. For Steele, it was getting real, and he would be like so many others and leave it in the hands of God. But it was hard to get it out of your head that your bombardier and friend, Gardner Reynolds, never returned from the last mission. And the mission to St. Nazaire, the previous missions to St. Nazaire, had been very difficult indeed. Once again, the lot had been cast and the mission was on. And the 8th Air Force was going to do what they could to break up the German submarines. The plan was to bomb the torpedo stores and the submarine pens. The B-17s were to be loaded with five 1,000-pound general-purpose bombs. The first wing would consist of 72 planes from the 91st, 303rd, 305th, and 306 bomb groups. And the second wing would be made up of 13 B-24s from the 44th bomb group. The bomb groups were to fly the Colonel LeMay Stagger Formation, which we've discussed in the past, which is a high, low, and middle elements uh, of the formation. The route today would take them to Selsey Bill, what a great name, as the starting point, and then due south to Port Obesen, which I have been to and is only 23 kilometers east of Grand Comp Maisie, where my family lives. Salute, Grand Comp Maisie. I count the days to my return. The bomb group would then head south and west to Nam. Christoph, if you're listening, I hope you are well. Then they would make a right turn and a bomb run on St. Nazaire. Then a hard left bank and out into the Bay of Biscay. Then, as they reach further out to sea, they then would turn north, keeping breast on their right. Sound familiar? And all of this was going to be with 115 to 120 mile an hour cross and headwinds while they were dealing uh, with bad weather in England also. In fact, the weather would significantly deteriorate throughout the day. And the aircraft then were scheduled to be on the target around 11.39 a.m. This was going to be a tough mission, so the 24-year-old Major Lanford was going to lead it. 
He was the commander of the 368 Squadron, and he was not going to ask the crews to do something that he would not do himself. I made an earlier reference that the 366, uh, I'm sorry, that the 306th may not have enough crews to fly. That was specifically referenced to navigators, but it looks like they were expected to get 18 aircraft into the hunt today, uh, and ultimately they were able to get 17 aircraft uh, in the air, and we will see that they did patch some crews together to make that happen. Uh, in fact, we also had one pilot that was flying as a bombardier. And just after uh, 0900, the 306 started to get her planes in the air and into formation and head for Celsi Bill. She was a well-worn but beautiful aircraft with unbearable painted on her right side, just below the side windows, back of the nose. She would arrive in Thurley in mid-October 1942, and she was first flown in combat by our now-departed Captain John Brady on November 17, 1942, on a mission to Saint-Nazaire, déjà vu. And it was this mission where Captain Brady and the Unbearable dropped out of formation with two other aircraft to protect Captain Williams and his aircraft that had been severely crippled by enemy fire. Captain Brady then flew the unbearable to Romilly's Hussein, where she had downed a hat trick of enemy fighters. And it was the unbearable who just a couple of days ago was unfit to fly. So Captain Brady and Gardner Reynolds flew a replacement plane and never came home. Today's honor of flying the unbearable would fall on Lieutenant Ralph Jones and 2nd Lieutenant David Steele. Steele was thinking, this is Captain Brady's aircraft. Brady broke her in. This is his baby. It was kind of an eerie feeling, and superstition can get the best of you. But Lieutenant Ralph Jones could stake a claim to her also, as he had flown with her and Brady. Now she was his baby, and he would aspire to be as liked and respected as Brady. Lieutenant Jones had a couple of missions under his belt, and to keep the connection going, he had finished his air cadet training in Lubbock, Texas, right down the road from where Steele grew up. The crews were ordered to their planes, so let's get these babies in the air, and we'll go through who's flying with Jones and Steele today. Second Lieutenant George W. Owens, Jr. was flying as the navigator today, and he was a graduate of Woodrow Wilson High School in Dallas, Texas, and he had joined the Air Corps after a call to arms in December of 1941. Second Lieutenant Owens was in the 368 Squadron, but the planes were short of crews this day, especially navigators, so Owens would be flying as a replacement on the unbearable. He had just turned 22 years old in November. He had sharp, distinctive features, but he looked younger than his age, and his Air Corps hat dominated his head, and it was as crooked as a dog's hind leg. A fellow Texan gave Steele some comfort, but that was due to geography, not experience. Steele would have been more comfortable with his navigator, but Orman Hamilton was still not fit to fly. The bombardier was native Ohioan 2nd Lieutenant George S. Horner, who'd been with the squadron since June of 1942. It was going to be easy to call the nose of the aircraft today a simple, Hey George, will do. Staff Sergeant Henry Bean was manning the radio today. He was a young man with a big infectious smile, which was indicative of his sense of humor. 
He was an electrician by trade, so you might say he had an electric personality. He was from Cochise County, Arizona, where he loved the Old West and dime novels, and he was quite the quick-draw artist with the six-gun, and he practiced a lot until one day he accidentally discharged the weapon, just missing his father, and thereafter he decided to give up the quick-draw. Four of Steele's crew were flying with him today, a couple of them who we've already met, Staff Sergeant Walter Piotrowski from New Hampshire, and our future toddler, Staff Sergeant William Hull, who already has a downed enemy aircraft to his credit. The two new introductions are Engineer Tech Sergeant Leon Leroy Bamforth, and lastly, the tail gunner, Staff Sergeant James E. Smoot, who is from Tennessee. The last member of the crew flying on the unbearable today is Staff Sergeant Clarence Durham, who is manning one of the waste guns across from William Hull. The unbearable was flying with a crew today that had been pieced together, and I'm sure you're starting to realize that each mission has sort of patching and sewing that goes on, and you can imagine how difficult that can be for crews to work together in highly stressful situations when they've never worked together in the past. The 306 Bomb Squadron started to take off just after 0900. They circled the airfield as the rest of the aircraft and crews uh, met up with them. Major Lanford started the procession and set the formation point as the other aircraft joined in. As I mentioned, Major Lanford was 24 years old, but he had good experience and he was worried about this mission because they were going to see an old friend and there was nothing else he could do other than lead from the front and that's exactly what he was going to do. As the third aircraft of Captain Terry's element of the 369th Squadron went through engine rev, it blew a cylinder head and was forced out of the mission. The good news was the remaining aircraft made it into the formation, so 17 aircraft from the 306 bomb group were on their way to Celsi Bill and then port en besson Let's now run through the aircraft and crews as they head for Celsi Bill. As we had discussed, Major Lanford was in the lead aircraft of the lead element, and he was once again flying skipper, plane number 129. In the number two position was Captain Smith, flying plane 507, which was named Yankee Raider. And in the third uh, slot is Lieutenant Reber, flying 24466, a no-named F-Beauty. The second element was made up of three no-named F-beauties. This element was led by Captain Lambert in 25175. Lieutenant Parker then was in the number two position, flying plane 511. And in the third slot was Lieutenant Brandon, uh, flying plane 469. The third and last element of this section is also a, another set of three no-named F-beauties. Uh, this element is led by Captain Raper in 24514. In the number two position is Lieutenant Ferguson flying 412451. And then in the number three slot is Lieutenant Buddenbaum flying 24493. The second section of the squadron then comes up, and this section was being led by Captain Terry, who was flying the plane called a first-timer for us, four of a kind, 
and that plane number was 24471. In that number two position is Lieutenant Cranmer, and he's flying a familiar plane to us, which was the Sons of Fury, and that's 24470. And then that third position was an open slot due to the busted cylinder head that we had talked about on takeoff. The second element of the second section was led by a familiar name to us, Captain Mac McKay of the 423rd Squadron. He's flying 24460, which you're probably familiar with by now, which is a no-named F-Beauty. In the number two slot is being captained by Lieutenant George. He's also flying a no-named F-Beauty 25171. And then flying in the number three slot is the unbearable with Lieutenant Jones and Steele. The third element of the second section uh, flying in the number one position was Little Audrey. And that was uh, captained by Lieutenant Charles Flanagan. That plane number was 560. The number two slot is being captained by Lieutenant Jack Spaulding in plane number 24461, another no-named F-Beauty. And in the third and final slot uh, is a plane called Banshee 2. And her captain today was Lieutenant Wild Bill Casey, and her plane number was 24488. As the bomb group crossed into France, it was eerily quiet, and the expected greeting by the Luftwaffe at Port-en-Basson was disappointing because it was non-existent. Just kidding. But it made for a weird feeling, and it had the pilots wondering what was up. Aboard the Unbearable, everything was normal, and for once, everything seemed to be in proper working order when just days before she was unable to get in the air. So Steele was monitoring the engines with his one good eye, while the other eye had that wandering habit of looking for enemy aircraft. The chatter was light as the group headed for Nantes. In my trips to Normandy, I've spent time at Port-en-Basson, and one of my French family members is a fishmonger in Nantes. So the path that the bomb group is flying today, even though it is as the crow flies, it has deep personal family ties, and knowing that Uncle David Steele flew over both cities allows me to add to the story. Around 11.20 a.m., the bomb group moved into Nantes airspace, and the skipper made a right turn, and the group followed. They were headed for Saint-Nazaire and the bomb run. They were about 20 minutes out. The flak at Nantes started up, and it was what they called heavy slight. And it was on target. But as Captain Mac McKay led the three 423rd planes through the flight path, the Nantes flak became quickly forgot forgettable, uh, and ultimately was not even mentioned by any of the Grim Reapers in their after-action reports. From a fighter perspective, it was still quiet, too quiet, as the 303rd Bomb Group, who was ahead of the 306th, came into Saint-Nazaire. Jones and Steele and the crew of the Unbearable could see it, the black carpet of death. It was flak, and it was heavy and intense. Saint-Nazaire was getting the reputation for putting up well-aimed flak and a lot of it, and today would be no different. Steele and Jones kept the unbearable humming, and the intercom chatter started to pick up. The look on Steele and Jones's faces was one of, they had run into an old friend, 
who was coming to collect a debt. It was a nervous energy while trying to fly the aircraft and stay in formation. They were getting close to the bomb run and turning the ship over to Lieutenant Horner, the Ohioan, but not quite yet. Jones and Steele could see the Hell's Angels in front of them. That's the nickname of the 303rd Bomb Group. And they witnessed a barrage of flak and then fighters at the same time. And again, the Luftwaffe were reckless in their pursuit of B-17s as they dove through the flak in order to catch and kill a Hell's Angel. Lieutenant Jones called out over the intercom to prepare for the bomb run, and the crew readied itself. Jones was staying tight to McKay, and Lieutenant George was on their right. They were looking good. Steele was monitoring the engines and the speed, and so far everything was good. Still no problems, similar to the ones that she had experienced over the last couple of days. Everyone was doing their job, and everyone was on edge, because for the most part, the Luftwaffe had left them alone, and they were cruising in for a solid bomb run. Man, if they could just take out those torpedo dumps, just think of the shipping and the lives they could save. Lieutenant Jones passed the plane to Lieutenant Horner, the bombardier, and they went into the bomb run. Remember, no evasive maneuvers. They just had to sit there and take it. Well, that's not completely true, as every gunner was at their post, waiting for the hunter to jump on its prey. Steele had never seen so much flak. It was everywhere, and it was constant. Ahead of them, the Hell's Angels were under a swarm of at least 30 Luftwaffe fighters, like a bunch of hornets swarming through the entrails and black smoke. Oh no, Jones and Steele watched in horror as the Cali of the 427th Bomb Squadron, who had Bugs Bunny as their mascot, blew up and disintegrated over St. Nazaire, a victim of the Black Death, Flack. There were no parachutes. Jones and Steele kept their cool, but they were rattled, and the unbearable, along with the rest of the 306, were in range, and the sky was on fire, and the thunder was deafening, and the windows of the unbearable were shaking. Major Lanford has the skipper and the bomb group in order, and they were the last group to run the gauntlet. The three other groups were well engaged, and now the Luftwaffe pilots started to take notice of the 306th. Captain McKay and the 423rd counted nine enemy aircraft, mostly Focke Wolf 190s, but a few ME-109s. No fancy color schemes, just persistent fighters pressing through their own flak and making passes at the bomb group. The bombs from the 306th bomb group started to fall. The skipper, Yankee Raider, and Lieutenant Reber were first. Yankee Raider could see the German smoke pots, at least 50 of them, trying to mass the target. And the screening, which 15 minutes earlier had been ineffective, was starting to disorient the bombardiers. But the bombardiers still had some landmarks, so bombs away. Again, again, and again. Captain McKay led the Grim Reapers through the target area. Bombs away. Lieutenant Pollock in McKay's aircraft releases the bombs, but they are short. Damn! Lieutenant George in his no-named aircraft with replacement bombardier Lieutenant Meade Warner, remember one of the replacements to come in with steel, releases their bombs. 
direct hits, and the crew of the Grim Reapers can see the shockwaves carry through the city. Not bad for a rookie bombardier flying as a replacement. Bombs away, the unbearable and bombardier Lieutenant Horner are away, with mixed results. It seems Lieutenant Warner was able to put down the best pattern today. The last element of the 306, led by Lieutenant Flanagan and Little Audrey, make their run, and they get raked by flak. Fighters, fighters, low at 12 o'clock. The Luftwaffe squadron of ME-109s and Focke-Wulf 190s came up after the 306th. Two Focke-Wulfs make a pass and throw a 20-millimeter cannon shell through the front of Lieutenant Spaulding and co-pilot Lieutenant Jones's cockpit. This is another Lieutenant Jones. Tearing through Jones's uh, steering column and getting lodged behind Lieutenant Spaulding's head, burning him on the face and cutting him above the eye. Lieutenant Jones does not have a steering column, but his first concern is Jack, who is rattled, but okay. The rest of the aircraft is ripped by gunfire, and just like that, they took pretty significant damage. The pilots get their wits about, and the damage reports start coming in. Jones is reporting the number three engine is losing oil pressure, and we better get her shut down before she burns. The hydraulics are out, the rudder cable is shot away, and the vertical fin is badly damaged. They were able to stay tight and keep her flying. They finished the bomb run, which was made by their replacement, Sergeant Clark, and they carry on. Back to the unbearable. Lieutenant Jones has the controls again, and everyone save Steele is manning a Browning machine gun, including Lieutenant Horner, who is replaying his bomb release. The unbearable is shaken. Lieutenant, sir, we have a hole in the right wing tip, Steele reports. How bad? Looks okay. I don't see any other damage. The flak pounding continues. The noise and the thunder are constant, and there is no relief. Staff Sergeant Bamford, the engineer, reports that the top turret guns are not working. Leon, get working on those guns. We're going to need them steel commands. But it was more of a reminder than a command. The unbearable was getting hit with flak, but nothing too serious, other than a hole in the right wing, of course. Steele is watching the gauges, adjusting the turbocharges. Sergeant Banford continues working on the top turret guns. Then, like a flash of lightning, Lieutenant Ferguson in the 368 Squadron, in his no-named F-Beauty, 4124501, is nailed by flak. Steele and Jones watch as Lieutenant Fergie Ferguson's aircraft shutters. The two inboard engines are out. Second Lieutenant John Elliott quickly feathers the props, but the number two engine catches on fire. Fergie's trying to keep her in the air, and Second Lieutenant Elliott is trying to extinguish the number two engine, but nothing is working. Oh, the chaos and circus of events all unfolding at the same time. Lieutenant George, with Lieutenant Hopkins in the co-pilot's seat, gets peppered with flak. Lieutenant Meade Warner is hit in the hand, right hand. He's going to be okay. Should I dare say he shook it off? The gunners can see holes in the fuselage and the hydraulic system is knocked out. The bomb group is booking it out of town and lowering altitude as they do. And when they cross 15,000 feet, the red and green tracers come pouring through the group. 
Holy phosphorus, do you see that? The Unbearables crew calls out. Sir, we have another problem. Sergeant Henry Bean reports that the radio is out. I don't know if it's been hit by flack, but I can't get it to work. Steele thinks to himself, that's not a good omen for a day with such bad weather in England. Hmm. The bomb group is now over the Bay of Biscay, and while the flak starts to slow, the red and green tracers continue to light up the sky. And Steele watches as Fergie's aircraft dramatically slows and turns back towards the mainland. Steele can see that Fergie has lost his third engine and surmises that that is a smart move if he can make it back over dry land. Lieutenant Ferguson and Second Lieutenant Elliot are out of options. Three engines are out, and there's not a lot much more that they can do other than try to keep her from rolling over. They are immediately dogged and tagged by a couple of Fokka wolves. As the 20-millimeter cannon fire tears through the fuselage, Staff Sergeant Earl Kerbo is immediately killed by the cannon fire. Fergie calls to the crew, bail out. Lieutenant Donald Green and Bombardier Robert Levy are the first out, exiting through the nose hatch and falling to their deaths in the icy cold surf below. Tail gunner Rupert Arnold is able to exit the aircraft, only to find that his parachute does not work, and he falls to his death. Robert Kingan, Richard Hackworth, James Loving, Charles Edinger, John Elliott, and Fergie are all out of the aircraft and they watch her hit the ground and explode. They gently glide down, being tracked by a Fokka wolf, but they survive the jump, landing in the arms of their captors, where they will spend the rest of the war. The carnage continued, and some stories are worth telling, even if only related to the 423rd and Steel through the participation of this particular mission. As the snap crackle pop, plane number 412420, yes, she was named by a Kellogg's worker, left the bomb run, she was hit by flak and crippled. Staff Sergeant Alan McGee, the ball turret gunner, scrambled to get out of the ball turret. And as he was waiting at the bomb bay doors for the radio man, Staff Sergeant Alfred Union, he noticed that his chest pack had a huge hole in it. Worthless, he says to himself, I've got to get a parachute. And then blam! The snap crackle pop is hit again by Flack, and she spins and throws Staff Sergeant McGee out of the Bombay doors at 20,000 feet. Staff Sergeant McGee was unconscious due to the lack of oxygen, and he fell 20,000 feet and into the glass roof of the St. Nazaire train station, where he hung suspended in the roof's girders. The Germans came in, cut him down, took him to the hospital, patched up his mangled arm and leg so he could serve the rest of the war out in a POW camp. Staff Sergeant McGee survived the fall, the day, and the war to live another 61 years. Crazy, right? What are the odds of falling 20,000 feet without a parachute and living? I wonder if that means the key to a long, successful life is Rice Krispies cereal. Maybe. So how does the rest of the 306 look as they head into the Bay of Biscay and as they quickly drop altitude to make a run home at sea level? 
Jones and Steele are busy flying the unbearable, and it feels pretty chaotic right now as they try to stay focused. Look, Lieutenant Cranmer in Sons of Fury is struggling. She's hit and beat up by Flack. She's slowing. The number three engine on the right side is out and feathered. We're going to pass right over her. Cover her, boys, if you can. Sergeant Banford in a top turret gun is thinking, well, it'd be nice to cover anyone. I can't get these damn things to work. I wonder if they were hit by flak. I can't see it. Captain McKay's number two engine has the supercharger running away, and they're going to have to shut her down. Captain Lambert is leading the bomb group out to sea, and the Luftwaffe continues to pursue it, and they make another pass on the group. The gunners are putting up a good defense today, and the German fighters are not as persistent as they were in the last mission in pressing through the 50 caliber tracers. Staff Sergeant Smoot in the tale of the unbearable continues to give updates on Lieutenant Cranmer and the Sons of Fury as she slowly starts to fall back and is having a hard time keeping up. The bomb group passes to the west of Belleau, France, and they hit 12,000 feet and a Messerschmitt ME-109 makes a run at Steele's element. Staff Sergeant Piotrowski from his ball turret gun position and Staff Sergeant Durham from his right waist gun call out the ME-109, coming low at 1 o'clock after Lieutenant Warren George's aircraft. But the ME-109 is too far away for the unbearable to shoot at without jeopardizing George's aircraft. But in George's aircraft, right waist gunner Staff Sergeant Don Bevan from Springfield, Massachusetts, who was known as the squadron's artist, got a bead on the 109 and started to fire just as the fire was being returned by the ME-109. Unlike the other aircraft of the day, this ME-109 pressed all the way into the attack, firing in a fanatical charge and exchanging round for round with Staff Sergeant Bevan. Then at point-blank 50 yards as the bullets from both aircrafts are striking both planes, the ME-109 shudders in a horrific crash and at 25 yards bursts into flames and screams past the no-named F-Beauty, rolling over and headed for the water with no parachute spotted. Staff Sergeant Bevan, the squadron's artist, talented artist, is credited with a kill. It was not his first, and being an artist, he liked to rescratch he liked to resketch the scenes for posterity. The bomb group headed further out into the Bay of Biscay without further incident and continued to drop altitude, and Lieutenant Cranmer and the Sons of Fury continued to lag along as they were headed north, trying to keep the Brest Peninsula off to their right. They continued west and north, and when confident they were around Brest, north and east towards the English coast. They continued to drop altitude and were at a thousand feet, which most, which most of the crews said that they liked and favored, but you were never going to get in a unanimous opinion. The weather was getting worse and they were not going to make it back to Thurley, so they were going to need a backup plan, and that plan was to land at St. Eval in Cornwall. The unbearable still without a radio, a top gun, and a complete right wing was in her number three slot, focused on flying at sea level sprint home in worsening weather. The crews of the bomb group were semi-relaxed when out of the cloud cover they were jumped by six Faka Wolfs, obviously from the Brest region of France, and we know how good these pilots are. 
it raises an additional curiosity point of how they found them and how did they know where they were going to be. It's not easy finding a bomb group with no contrails and flying at such a low level under radar. A call went out. Enemy aircraft. Six o'clock high and diving. It'd be nice to have some fighter escort, but there was none. The Faka Wolf Yellow-Nosed Bastards dove on the bomb group and specifically singled out the straggler Sons of Fury. Just like we are watching Mutual of Omaha as Marlin explains to us how the lions are going to single out the weak so they may have a meal. It's almost like it's a law of nature. The Faka Wolves ramped up speed and from a slightly higher altitude make a pass at the Sons of Fury. The gunners tried to put up a defense. Sergeant Edgar Whitaker from his tail gun position and Sergeant Arizona Harris from his top turret gun try to keep the wolves at bay. But the cannon fire comes through the Sons of Fury and then they fly by. But this provides an opportunity for Staff Sergeant Charlie Wall and Sergeant Robert Ransom to get engaged from their waist gun positions. The Sons of Fury gunners trailed them as they went by as the Faka Wolves and the Sons of Fury did not have much altitude to work with from an evasive action perspective. The Faka Wolves peeled off before getting any closer to the rest of the bomb group, making sure to keep their distance. But that did not keep James Smoot in the unbearable and Private Billy Lamb in Lieutenant George's aircraft the opportunity to send tracers their way as a reminder and who knows, maybe even getting lucky with one of those range bursts and knocking one of these predators down. The yellow-nosed bastards make a wide turn and come around on the six o'clock for their second pass. Here they come again, and the Sons of Fury gunners open up with exhausting machine gun fire from their browning machine guns, and the Faka wolves press through it again, diving slightly from above and at six o'clock, and open fire with their 20mm cannons that are on target, and the Sons of Fury takes a horrendous beating as the cannon shells explode through the aircraft. The Faka Wolf speed past the Sons of Fury again as her gunners are joined by the bombardier Lieutenant George Grifford Reed and navigator Lieutenant Paul Byer. They try to provide a defense, but it's too late. The Sons of Fury is damaged beyond control and she heads for the water. Sergeant Smoot and the Unbearable and the rest of the bomb group watch as four crew members exit the aircraft at a very low level, and then the Sons of Fury makes a ditched landing in the rough channel waters, the whole time being flown under control. The radio man, Tech Sergeant Roscovich, who was in Captain Yuri's crew but was replacing today in Lieutenant George's aircraft, makes a mayday call for sea rescue as the coordinates are called out. It was not long before a sea rescue was launched and attempted, even in such poor weather. The unbearable, really the tail gunner, Staff Sergeant James Smoot of Steele's crew, had a good view of the action and watched as the Sons of Fury landed in the water. He witnessed and noted, as did others, the top turret gun manned by Tech Sergeant Arizona Harris was still firing, and you could see the flashes as he returned the fire on the strafing enemy fighters. Yes, strafing enemy aircraft as those yellow-nosed bastards had circled back and made an additional pass at the Sons of Fury as she lay suspended on the water. K-2 
Captain McKay, the lead plane of the 423rd Squadron, noted that the Sons of Fury sat on the water for 40 seconds as she slowly filled and sank. Sergeant Smoot could see no life raft and no dinghy. Nothing else left the aircraft. What was noticed was Sergeant Arizona Harris remaining in the top turret gun position as he continued to fight off the enemy aircraft. This continued until the icy water filled the plane and the bubble of the turret gun, and the Sons of Fury went under. Only then did Harris's guns stop firing. The bomb group had lost another aircraft, and there were no survivors from the Sons of Fury. The Focke Wolves had had enough, and the bomb group headed for their new base for the day, St. Eval in Cornwall, due to the poor weather and visibility that was moving over Great Britain. Sergeant Arizona Harris from Tempe, Arizona, would, all right, here's a word I always struggle with, posthumously get the Distinguished Service Cross for Extraordinary Heroism. The Distinguished Service Cross is the second highest Army medal only to the Medal of Honor. Russell Strong, in his book, First Over Germany, notes part of the award account for Sergeant Harris, which reads as follows. Throughout the descent, and as the airplane disappeared beneath the waves, Sergeant Harris was seen to be firing his guns at the enemy airplanes. The dog determination to fight against all odds and sheer bravery displayed by Sergeant Harris upon this occasion uphold the highest traditions of the armed forces. Another aircraft that we are familiar with, the Sons of Fury, was gone, and so was the crew. Lieutenant Charles Cranmer from New Jersey was piloting with Lieutenant Albert Brunstein from Grundy County, Iowa, as the co-pilot. Lieutenant John Grifford Reed was from Louisiana, the bombardier. Lieutenant Paul Breyer from Pennsylvania was the navigator. The radio man was Sergeant Kermit Constantine, another Louisiana man, and the gunners were William Music of Rose County, Ohio, Charlie Wall of Salisbury, North Carolina, Robert Ranson of Bear, Texas, and Edgar Whitaker of Worcester, Massachusetts. Once again, a crew whose bodies will never be found and were lost at sea. The rest of the flight was uneventful, but the weather added to the stress of the day, and as these young men thought about their fallen comrades, Jones and Steele with the unbearable inner crew came into St. Eval and landed safely without a radio, a top turret gun, and a good-sized hole in her right wing, but the crew were safe with no wounds or frostbite. The aircraft with the wounded had priority, and each of the aircraft safely landed, except for Lieutenant Spaulding and Lieutenant Jones. They actually crash-landed with their no-named F-beauty due to not having any brakes uh, on their aircraft, which had been shot out. The crews were shaken and away from home. The bad weather had settled over Great Britain, so they were grounded until further notice. After three days, Major Lanford was told the weather was breaking and it would be safe to fly back to Thurley, and Thurley would be clear by the time that they got there. So the bomb group mounted up, Jones and Steele and their wholly unbearable, and frankly, most of the aircraft were wholly, and a couple still needed repairs. Steele ran them through the checklist. Crew, good, check, Brakes locked, 
check. Trim tab set, check. Exercise turbos and props, check. The clouds broke and they were in the air. It was not long after they were on their northeast vector that Major Lanford reported that Thurley is under bad weather, and so the bomb group was headed back to St. Eval. Mother Nature once again had cast her evil lot. Strong crosswinds pushed the bomb group well into the channel, and as they circled back towards St. Eval, when the bomb group then broke out of the clouds, they found themselves over the Channel Islands and off the coast of France. Flak started to explode among the group, and a Luftwaffe pilot and a Focke Wolf 190 made a pass on the bomb group. The bomb group was scattered and out of formation. Bandits! Bandits! And the warning went out through the group. The crews rushed to their guns, as they certainly were not expecting battle stations for a simple trip home. Major Lanford and the skipper made a vector for St. Eval, and he and Lieutenant Parker were the only two to make it back there. What a mess! You know that the young Major was wondering what had just happened and where was his bomb group. Jones and Steele were certainly not expecting this much excitement on a milk run home, but here it was. They, with the rest of the bomb group, took a heading towards Land's End, I just love that name, as the weather was getting increasingly worse again. Steele went through the checklist again. Autopilot off, check. Landing gear visual down, right, check. Down left, check. Tail wheel down, check. Antenna in, check. Ball turret, check. The unbearable landed safely, and that is when things really started to get weird. Not only was the flight leader, Major Lanford, missing, but so was Lieutenant Parker and Lieutenant Brandon. Lieutenant Brandon in 4124469 was flying a no-name deaf beauty, and she too was missing. The crews were chatting, but no one had seen her. What was going on? They all wondered, and what had just happened? Here she comes. The crews could see Lieutenant Brandon coming into Land's End, and she has a Spitfire escort. Look at that. And she came in for a landing, and something must have been off because she pulled up and aborted the landing. The crews watched as she circled around and flew into a cloud bank. That was the last time anyone ever saw Lieutenant Brandon and his crew in aircraft 4124469 again. This mission just went from bad to worse, and like something out of a Bermuda Triangle movie, aircraft 4124469 was gone, and nothing of her crew or the plane were ever found. What had happened? What was going on? Why abort the landing? They must have gotten lost or confused. The navigator, Lemuel Smith, had been with the squadron since the summer, so he was plenty experienced. How long did they fly? What were they thinking and what were their final minutes like in the cloudy and gloomy skies? And then, most likely, ending up ditching somewhere in the rough, cold seas. With Lieutenant Robert Brandon and the no-named F-Beauty were Lieutenant Morell Henry, 2nd Lieutenant James Murphy, Lieutenant Lemuel Smith, 2nd Lieutenant James Jones, a co-pilot, flying as a waste gunner, 
Staff Sergeant Carlton Porter, Staff Sergeant J.W. Elliott, Staff Sergeant Earl Owen, Staff Sergeant Joseph Barnes, and Staff Sergeant Gerald Hopkins, another group of young men whose families spent the rest of their lives wondering and hoping, just like their comrades who were stunned as they had just seen them. They aborted a landing and just circled back for another go. It really is crazy, and it really is sad, but as a reminder of how these airmen would fly missions where the elements could kill them faster than any enemy pilots. When the weather finally cleared, the bomb group made it home on January 8th, five days after the mission had started. Russell Strong reports in First Over Germany how this mission had a significant impact on the young 24-year-old Major Lanford. You can imagine the pressure, stress, and second-guessing that was going on with that young man for the rest of his life. There were three planes and crews down. He got separated from their group, and no matter the reasons, good leaders carry those burdens and have that yoke of responsibility. The same day of their return, January 8, 1943, Brigadier General Longfellow, commanding from the headquarters of the 8th Air Force Bomber Command, would praise the results of the mission and tout the devastating damage that the mission had on the submarine operations in Saint-Nazaire. He would go on to say that this mission had done more damage than all of the other missions combined and that he was proud of the crews for improving and getting better at their jobs. I'm sure that the 423rd Squadron, like the rest of the bomb group, was glad to hear of the Brigadier General's pleasure, but they were getting tired and they were losing a lot of friends and planes, and influenza continued to ravage the group. And even though they were young and spirited, things like that take their toll. This concludes our episode, An Old Friend. Our next mission is going to be a historic one, as it will be the 8th Air Force first mission into Germany on January 27, 1943. Until next time, just think of the things you can find when you are looking for something else. Gaspar, out. <laughs>